right, let's go to chapter, well, we're going to go to chapter three, but I didn't, I purposely didn't finish out chapter two for this reason. Well, I'll give you the reason. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel uh, remained in the king's court. Now, it's tempting now to create a principle that says, well, if you live by your conscience that is informed by the clarity uh, that comes from knowing God, then all things will go well in your life and, or, or better, you'll be immediately promoted and applauded by the world. <laughs> and so chapter 3 dispels that principle along with the rest of Scripture. And what I find interesting in these first three chapters are, is this escalation of peril. So we got in chapter 1, there is this loss of position and opportunity uh, that requires a resolve to hold on to one's conscience. Chapter 2, there's a loss of life. There's a chance he's going to lose his life. But uh, he has some time to consider options uh, that requires a, a resolve to hold on to his clarity of who God is. But here in chapter 3, the peril is to the point where there's no time to reconsider. Okay, there, the, 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 There's got to be a spot decision made by Daniel's friends is what we're going to, we're going to see here. And I think, I think this, this is why this is important, is that resolve has to be made now. It's got to be made today. Um, it's got to be made this morning. Because we don't know what we're going to be facing this afternoon. And that's what I was talking about earlier. Now is the time to resolve for the level of parallel, peril. Right, right now it's like, oh, this is great. We're having a good time with one another. We're talking. We're thinking these things through. We're having great questions and response back and forth. It doesn't feel like we're under attack. This afternoon, the attack comes, right? It's going to escalate quickly. Where all of a sudden you are tempted. You're going to face a temptation. I'm going to face a temptation this, this afternoon. And that's the point of where have I made these resolutions yet? We need to resolve now so that when we face it, it's going to, it can escalate quickly is all I'm trying to say here. All right? So chapter 3, here it is. I'm going to throw it out here at the beginning. We must resolve to hold fast to our superior satisfaction. We must hold fast to our superior satisfaction if we are going to have joyful courage. Superior satisfaction if we are going to have joyful courage in the face of a culture that is hostile to our faith in Jesus Christ. Superior satisfaction. Yes, I can say that again. We, it is a Piper sin. We must, actually, that's exactly right. It's kind of desiring God. Uh, we must resolve to hold fast to our superior satisfaction if we are to have joyful courage in the face of a culture that is hostile to our faith in Jesus Christ. So what are the things, some things that men think of will make us satisfied apart from, from Christ? What are some things that you hope for in life, let's just say apart from Christ? What, what are some things that you can, or have hoped for, or even struggle to hope for apart from Christ? Money. Money. What? Careers. Careers. Possessions. What? Okay. Marriage. Possessions. Power. Possessions. Power. Success. What's that? Success, influence. influence. You begin to think about the things that, you know, as we're, we're being kind of trained in our culture, uh, apart from Christ, 
we begin to, you know, God's given this thing called an imagination, and we have the capability to imagine what's going to really make life good. And we begin to kind of paint that picture of what that looks like, and you can begin to think about, oh, wow, that, what that painting looks like, what that picture looks like, that ultimate thing out there is that superior satisfaction. That's the thing that we think is, we're willing to live and die for. Um, that's, that's, what we're, that's what we have there. So, so just let me, let me simply have you consider this, and I'm just going to ask this rhetorically at this point. What do you think will really make you satisfied? You know, so this is rhetorical, so you can just seep into your own heart. What do you think would really make you satisfied? What do you believe will make you really happy in life? Now, just, let's just keep that in our mind as we look at the text. All right, so verses 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits, and he set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So look where they've been. They've been, they've been promoted, and they've been promoted to the province of Babylon. So we have, we have these four, one Daniel in the, in the uh, actual court, and then we have the three who are in Babylon itself. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud and said, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, uh, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image of the King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and whatever, whoever does not fell, fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pyre, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right, so now, fresh off of God graciously revealing to King Nebuchadnezzar the future, and the revealing uh, to the king where God fits in the context of the, Neb- of the Babylonian gods and where God fits in the life of the king of which Nebuchadnezzar professes with his own mouth. Nebuchadnezzar says back in verse 47 of chapter 2, Truly, your God is the gods, uh, God of gods and Lord of lords and revealers of mystery, mysteries. It's this king who's still insane, right? What's he do? He sets up an image, a golden image. That corresponds to the dream of the fact that his is, Daniel says, you're the golden image. And so he uh, responds by putting out there for them to worship me. Worship me and my kingdom. I'm, I'm going to give you ultimate meaning. Um, that's what he's having them do. And by the way, this is a, this is a, you know, this is a golden image. It's, it's probably made of you know, hollow wood that could rot, and then they kind of overlay it with some, with some gold. So this is not a pure gold thing in any way. Um, but he, he had to regard this golden image as representing himself and the embodiment of, of his divine power at this point. Because what's he want them to do? He wants them to worship. He wants them to put ultimate meaning, you put your ultimate meaning in me and in my kingdom and all that I'm going to be providing for you. So um, Babylon... And her culture is challenging God as the place of superior satisfaction. That's what's going on here. You're going to find your greatest satisfaction in Babylon. 
It is not by accident, though, that the statue, so it's not by accident the statue was set up in the province where the king resided and ruled from the District of Columbia of Babylon. <laughs> All right. So apparently, Daniel was away, and not only, not only in the province, but he must have been out of, out of country because he's not even part of the, uh, he doesn't even figure into this event. But did you notice uh, verse 2? Did you notice verse 2? This is a must-go-to event within the realm where the individuals and factions, what can they do? They can begin to jockey for political power. And so verse 3, we read this. Then the satraps, the uh, prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the intent was, is this is going to be an expression of political solidarity, cultural solidarity, and loyalty to the king. As one commentator said on this, it's like saluting the flag, is what's going on here. So now note, it wasn't primarily set up to root out disloyalty, okay, or for religious persecution. However, both were the possibility, if anyone had the courage to stand tall, in the face of the required worship. So verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So what's going on here? Well, it's going on is that in bowing down, they're giving allegiance. They've made a decision of their will. Life in the empire is best in obedience to that empire, and it's better, it's, it's, it's preferable to death. So again, you can begin to see, they're evaluating what is, what's my superior satisfaction. Well, it's got to be better than death. This is better than death. Or if I live, my superior satisfaction, I want to live for that superior satisfaction elsewhere, so I better just bow down so I don't get killed here. So, so life is necessary for my for my superior satisfaction. And that is true. That is true for all these individuals, except for three. This is the story of kingdoms clashing. It is Babylon's kingdom clashing with God's kingdom. And if we're going to be serious with God's kingdom, it will always lead to this kind of confrontation. One way or other, uh, one way for these three to live in the Babylonian kingdom was simply to keep their heads down, right? That's what they needed to do. They just need to keep their heads down. Liter figuratively, but literally, just keep your head down. That was the temptation that these three were, were facing. Were they going to have the courage? So, let's think about these three. What, what do they have to lose? <laughs> Well, they have, they, obviously, their life. But before that, um, just think about what they're, they're going to. They, they've, they've been there for a time. We don't know the distance of time between the first promotion and this chapter 3. We don't know the time. It could be very quickly or very short, I mean, very long. But the longer the time between chapters 1 and 3, the more they have to lose, right? The more they've gotten themselves embedded into the life they're living, the more comfortable they have become to the beginning to understand the world that they're living in. And they potentially, um, you know, the, the, their original resolve that they had has to, is not enough. I mean, you can't just resolve once and hope it feeds you over the next three years or four years or 15 years or 20 years. There needs to be an ongoing resolve here of uh, really what I would call a life of ongoing faith and repentance. They need to be having that every single day. Um, ultimately, it was going to be 
going to be God working through the resolve at this critical moment for them to remain standing while everyone else is, is bowing. So verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Now, we don't, know, we don't know the Chaldeans' motivation, but it's possible that jealousy is the prime motivating factor. Chaldeans, of course, were the favored class of the Babylonians. And, uh, but now they rank either equal or they uh, are lesser uh, in rank than these foreign Jews. And so they come forward with, what you see there, malice, the aim to do evil or to do harm. Verse 9. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music and shall fall down and worship uh, the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, what do you notice about their accusation? Just look at those accusations and how they kind of they, um, frame it. What do you see there? Now, only be careful only in the sense that that's by silence. We don't know. I mean, all we do know is we do know we have three individuals who are in this position of place of authority, and they're not, they're not bowing. They're not, they're not coming down. So we don't know what everybody else is doing, how many other Jews were part of this. So we've got to be careful of that. But there is a recognition of what? Jews, they're, not, they're the foreigners, right? They're not part of our culture. And notice what, how did they, how did they identify the names? What names did they give them? They, they gave them their Jewish names, right? We just need to be clear here. These are people who are not like us. So they're separating out who they are. They're not part of our culture. They're Jews. And remember their names, their Jewish names. They follow this other God kind of a, kind of a feel to it. What else do you notice about that? Yeah. You appointed. Excellent. Yes, you're the one who appointed them. And where did he appoint them to? What, where? Where Where did he appoint them to? What province? Right, thank you, Babylon. So Babylon, this is the province. This is, the, this is where all of the, the rules come out. This is where the culture is created. And you're the one who put them, put them there. So what does that imply they should be doing if they're in that position? They should be thankful, right? They should be, man, they should be grateful. They're not grateful for you. You've put them in a great position of, of power. You've put them as cultural makers, and look what they're doing with the power and position that you have placed them. They should be at least loyal to you for being a part of the inner circle, and they're not being loyal to you there. And they're taking this and not using it properly for the cultural moment that we, we have here. So, yeah, you, they're beginning to make an accusation. What's the, what's the ultimate accusation that they make of them? They, they, they show the observational accusation, which is they're not bowing down when they're playing the music. But what is, what is the overall accusation they're making? They want what? 
they won't serve your gods, and we know that because they're not bowing down. And then somebody else said something else. They're disregarding the king. They're disregarding, the king. They're disregarding everything you say. They're, they're challenging your integrity. They're challenging your leadership now. I find it interesting that he says, they say, that he doesn't listen to anything that you say. Now, what's really interesting is that's not true, right? They've, they've, been, they've, been, they've been good, loyal subjects up to this point. Um, what they're doing is they're getting after, they're getting after this, there's they're, they're, kind of a false accusation. Look, look back there at verse 12. Let me get it there, into verse 12. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So notice what they've done is they've done some inductive reasoning in their accusation. Their accusation is that they're always, they're always disloyal to the king. They're making an overall thing. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. And that conclusion is false, but it is the charge made and is based upon two observations. The Chaldeans uh, have made. They First, they say they do, you do, they do not serve your gods. The whole, and so the whole concept of the political loyalty is bound up in the gods who have favored him, Nebuchadnezzar, and given him victory. And secondly, they do not worship the golden image that you have set up. So both of those observations are true. They don't bow down. And they're not, they don't worship your gods. That's true. However, it does not mean that they are irresponsible or disloyal to the king's best interests. So here I think we can take from this. You can be faithful in many areas of life, but if you run contrary to one particular cultural value or one cultural narrative at the moment, all your faithfulness in all those areas of other part of life will be completely ignored. And that's what's going on here. They've been in a power position and they've been faithful to the king. It's not that they've ignored everything the king has said, but now they're being accused of it. It doesn't matter all that other faithfulness. What are some examples of that today? Yeah. So there's overall, we want good. We want good out of this. We want good for those who are in LGBTQ+. Anyway. Um, and, but, um, so, so that's, we love them in, in terms of Christ's love for the sinner, and yet we don't want to, we're considered a bigot if you then agree. Is that what you're kind of, kind of grabbing the hold of? Yeah, getting a piece of it? Okay. What was the example that you gave of the guy who's not a Christian but who got caught on the video? Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> well, I, just the hypocrisy of our culture doesn't have absolute truth. So, uh, you know, Morgan Wallen, country artist, sold more albums last year than anybody in the past 10 years. 
Ja. Yeah, so so yeah, so so you see the, the you, we begin to see this insanity, which I still I think that's still hope for us in that it it doesn't work, right? You can't. Eventually, we're all going to get canceled, and, and you know everybody's going to be canceled, and nobody's going to. I don't know what that means, but anyway, so so we're recognizing that if if people are realizing this is going to work, this is insane. And so hopefully God is using this as this discipline as a way to awaken us to us. Well, look what happens with Nebuchadnezzar, verse 13. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, this is what happens to him. And Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before him. Um, and characteristic of the king, by the way, he is furious, by the way, you know. So he brings them before the king. Uh, before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and worship the golden image that I have uh, that I have set up. So in, in practical terms, the king focuses not on the overall ca- accusation, uh, these men pay no attention to you, but on what it can be observed, the bowing down to the golden image and, that symbolizes the power and the empire of his, and his culminative God, God. So verse 15, uh, here he goes. Now, so now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the dragon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be pa- cast into the burning, fiery furnace who is, who, is, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, Nebuchadnezzar has experienced firsthand the greatness of the Hebrew God in terms of revealing mysteries. And in the end, however, he defies, Nebuchadnezzar does, he defies any God to deliver them from his hands, from his Babylonian hands. The claim of possessing a human power so great that there's no divine power to which they can restore is human pride to its logical conclusion. I mean, this is craziness. Now, here's where it gets really good and most instructive. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. (laughs) Faced with the threat of death, they are not repulsed. They do not flinch. Why do they not flinch? Verse 17. If this be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O God. Oh, sorry, O King. Sorry about that. So they do not flinch. Why? Pretty easy. Why don't they flinch? Okay, so we've, we've gone back to who we know God is. What's the, what the text itself actually say? Able. God is able. He is able to rescue. Um, they believe that God's will is better than their will. Thus, they believe that God is, is the superior satisfaction to the Babylonian gods and the culture. Now look at verse 18. But if not... All right, that's powerful right there. That's powerful. But if not, if God decides not to, if God's will 
So now they're beginning to rest in trust in God's will. But if God's will, his decreed will for our lives, is that he's not going to rescue us from this, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Job said it this way about God in the midst of his suffering. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. They are at a place, these three are at a place where life does not have enough value in comparison to the value they find in God. He is their superior satisfaction. And they had resolved to hold on to that superior satisfaction. Rick, you got something? Yeah, that's good. And, and I think that's a real temptation that we have. God has given us this ability to think about the future and to imagine that future. But what we can tend to do is we can create a future that is not true, right? And, and we say, oh, well, if I do that, this is going to be the outcome. Oh, I don't, can't do it that. So we, gotta, we, have to, we have to get our eyes back on. And so you can begin to see how this all works itself out. You, you, have, you understand what your identity is. And you understand who God is, chapter 1 and you understand who God is, chapter 2, then you come at this moment, this perilous moment, when you have to make a decision, snap decision of what you are going to do and have courage. If you have those two things going for you, then you are ready to say, okay, because if we understand who God is, then he does become our superior satisfaction, um, and as a result, then we know, well, if this means death, that's okay, because that's my superior satisfaction, what I wanted anyway. I wanted to, to be with him. So we must resolve to hold fast to that superior satisfaction. Now, notice the final words at verse 18. What do they say to him? This is an image that you have set up. So these men are directing their attention to the, to the king's arrogance. And he is, he, now they're saying to him, you have gone way beyond your station in life to say that he knows uh, whom they ought to worship and demand and demands that they worship him. So they have defied the king in front of the whole political elite. At this point. So no wonder, verse 19, no wonder, verse 19, um, the Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed <laughs> against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fire. And these men who were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, and their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Perhaps to illustrate the, the haste of the carrying out of the punishment, we get an account of their clothes, I don't know. Uh, but they're still wearing their royal garb and they're thrown into the furnace. And this small detail will later become a further testimony to the delivering power of God. So then you go down to verse 22. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Foolishly, he's now sacrificed his own best soldiers to get this, this, this bad boy done, right? So verse 23, um, 
And so these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So the furnace is left with the task of consuming these men who have challenged his authority and his gods. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to him, to the king, True, O king. (laughs) He answered and said, But I see four. Four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So it's not surprising that they're unbound, right? Whatever was used to bind them uh, probably burned rather quickly, but what is surprising is this. They're walking. They're walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. No physical harm has come to them, and matter of fact, they're walking, but what is truly astonishing is this fourth individual, like a son of the gods. So what Nebuchadnezzar sees is he sees a fourth figure that looks human, but more than human. Verse 26. So then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefix, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of, these, of those men. The hair of their head was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of the fire had come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own their own God. Yeah, therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall, burn, uh, shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses be laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. All right, so he still hasn't embraced God, but he's saying, no, can't speak anything against them uh, at this point. So, all right, so we've got to resolve. Resolve to hold fast to our superior satisfaction if we're going to have joyful courage in the face of the culture that is hostile to our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to do some principles, but we've got to go some New Testament verses. So, uh, here we go. We can do it. Uh, living and leading in Babylon, principle number one, will always lead to confrontation. That's just the first principle that we should get into our heads. It's always going to lead to confrontation. If we take seriously the call of our superior satisfaction. So it's always going to lead to uh, confrontation if we take seriously the call of our superior satisfaction. So if we're going to bring the gospel that Jesus is Lord. And that's good news, by the way, because he's also Savior. (laughs) It will demand that the lesser lords of one's life kneel. That's confrontation. Yeah, well, yeah. If we're going to bring the gospel that Jesus is Lord, it will demand that the lesser lords of one's life must kneel. So we're confronting. We're confronting idols uh, uh, of the heart. And that's what we're called to do um, in our own life and in lives of others. I want you to turn to uh, Paul, Acts, Acts chapter 9, and this is where we got to just recognize that 
Acts chapter 9, where um, which, we're going to just run into confrontations. Idols of the heart and of the state, yes. Yeah, yeah, this is what we're talking about. Because it, 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 the idols of Nebuchadnezzar's heart is leading itself out into then the state itself. So we're seeing it working itself out. So, Christ is the Lord over all things, yeah. It's his kingdom. This is his kingdom. We're living in his kingdom. So Acts chapter 9, uh, look what was interesting here. This is Paul's conversion um, where he meets Jesus on the, on the road and He's now in Damascus, and God comes to, the Lord comes to Ananias, uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen, go to Paul, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Now what a privilege, an opportunity that Paul now has had, that God's calling him out to. But now look at this. But what is more interesting, I think, is verse 16 for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, yes. So suffering was simply part of Paul's apostolic call. But you might, might, might say, well, I'm not Paul, right? And um, I'm, I'm not an apostle. So you've got to turn to your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Philippians 1, 29. So keep moving into the New Testament. Philippians 1, 29. Last Sunday in, in Davenport, Alex uh, Arguello spoke about the sola fide, faith alone. And if you remember in, in, he used, uh, or if you remember in Ephesians 2.8, he didn't use Ephesians 2.8, I don't think. Yeah, but if you remember Ephesians 2.8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It, faith, is the gift of God. All right, so sola fide, faith alone. Faith is a gift of God. Now look at uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, so faith, there it is again, not only should you believe in him, but it's also been granted to you that you should also suffer for his sake. And granted, that word granted there means literally to be freely given. This is a gift. So he's saying here suffering is a gift. So you're not an apostle in the sense of the office, but you are an apostle in the sense of that that means sent one. So it is a gift that we're, it's our identity as a missionary, and the gift that he gives us is we had faith. That's a gift to, to get that identity. But now the gift also is that we will suffer as a result of being uh, missionaries that will be, suffer, you know, that will be um, suffering as a result of this. So living and leading Babylon will always lead to confrontation. We just got to recognize that if we take this call seriously. So principle number two, living and leading, keep yourself in the New Testament here, living and leading in Babylon necessitates suffering. It necessitates suffering. It's, it, suffering is necessary in order to reveal your superior satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah, it will eventually provoke conflict as we are living out the fact that he is our superior satisfaction. Yeah, blessed. He says you're blessed if this be the case. So listen to this. This is interesting. So now turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 1, 24. 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings. So there's when I, when I, you know, I'm talking about this idea of we need to hold fast to our superior satisfaction so that we can joyfully suffer. That's, here's where we're starting to get that. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now that, that verse ought to kind of put you back on your heels a little bit because he's saying something is lacking in Christ's affliction. And we know that Christ's affliction ultimately is talking about the cross itself. So what does he mean by the fact that Christ's affliction is lacking? Well, we know, we know it's not this. We know it cannot mean the all-sufficient atoning work uh, worth of the death of Jesus. Jesus himself said on the cross, it is finished. John 19.30. In Hebrews 10.14 we read, by one offering Christ has perfected for all time those who are satisfied, uh, so, so, sorry, those who are sanctified. Pa- by one offering Christ has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So Paul knew and taught that the afflictions of Christ were a complete and sufficient ground for, this, for the justification because he said in Romans 5.9, we are justified by his blood. And then a few verses later he says, as through Adam's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of Christ the many will be made righteousness. So we know that Paul doesn't think that our suffering adds to the atoning work. Okay, The Christ's atoning suffering on the cross. That was complete. It's worth me taking a little bit of time to say that, right? So what was incomplete? What was insufficient? Well, Paul's rejoicing because he has the privilege to bring the good news that Christ's afflictions, for those who, that Christ was afflicted for those who have yet to hear the gospel. And so Christ was, was, was ascended into heaven, but there's many who have not heard the name yet or heard the name of Christ and what that meant for him. And so it re, he rejoiced in the fact that, first of all, he's bringing, he's bringing Christ's afflictions uh, to others who have not heard the good news. But guess what? How does he do that? He does that by being afflicted himself. And so uh, when we suffer for Christ, what we are revealing is what we're revealing a superior satisfaction found in Christ. When people looked into Paul's life as he's bringing the gospel and he's suffering, he's willing to die uh, for Christ. They're recognizing that Jesus Christ is his superior satisfaction. Um, so for, for others to see what we truly believe is superior requires that we suffer for it. Does that make sense? Yeah. See, what one is willing to die for is what one is willing to live for. That will show us our superior satisfaction. Okay, still in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And 10. Second Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Uh, let's go back to verse 8. He says, uh, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should that it should leave me, this thorn. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So then Paul writes, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, 
hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So suffering, all these things here, clearly is designed by God to spotlight his grace. It's the spotlight God's ability to be what we need. It's to show us what our, show others and ourselves, and show others what our superior satisfaction is. So it necessitates suffering. People won't know what we really believe. No, people won't know what is really, truly our superior satisfaction until they see us suffer for it. And when they see that, there are going to be people who are like, I want that. Because we're, they're finding that the things that they're trying to suffer for is, is lacking. It's empty. So what we're willing to die for is what we're going to be willing to, to live for there. All right, so principle number three. Principle number three is this. Living and leading in Babylon requires daily resolve. So here we are, back to our daily thing going on. Daily resolve to your superior satisfaction. Daily resolve to your superior satisfaction. So there is a tendency, our world is made up of, uh, the fact that everything seems to just kind of devolve unless we are continuing to try to make it better, make it better. And that's true of our own uh, resolve. We've got to daily resolve our superior satisfaction. So Jesus said uh, in Luke 9, 23, 24, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow him daily. And follow him for whoever wishes to save his life has a superior satisfaction shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. Jesus told the disciples in John 15, 20, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. There is no true Christianity. One cannot be a disciple without daily dying, without persecution. We need to recognize that. This is our lot, and it's a good lot, because we're showing the world a superior satisfaction that will bring them great joy. Now, what, remember what Daniel, uh, or what, remember what the three said to him? Go back to Daniel chapter three now at uh, verse 16. Remember what uh, they said to him? They said this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able, is, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They are trusting the will of God. And what? They're, they're trusting the will of God in this. And then, did you notice what the fourth the fourth figure was likened to back there. He's like a son of gods. So God meets them there in that fiery furnace. And I'm going to one more verse for you, and I think that this will tie that together. Um, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9 says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we, su- we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Don't let that pass over you. That, that, have you been that place where, God, just come. Just take me. Just take my life. That's where they were at. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So suffering is a way to wean us Christians off the breast of self-reliance and onto our superior satisfaction. That's what's going on. That's what they, they did. That's what these three did. They came to a point and said, okay, well, we're at your mercy. And ultimately, we're not at your mercy. We're at the mercy of God. He has the ability. He could do this. It could be his will. But if, even if it's not, it's okay. Because I trust that better than anything else that I could imagine. He's their superior satisfaction. And what's he do? He meets them there. We don't know who this is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's... Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's Jesus. It's, yes. It's not just a man, it's a son of man. This is one who is not just a man. He's recognized there's a man in there, but he's like, he's like God. Yeah, it's the incarnation. Pre-incarnation there. It's, he meets him. All right, so some applications here. Application number one. I think the first, one thing we just need to do is we need to accept the fact that following Jesus as your superior satisfaction will create trouble for your lives. So just, let's, let's just accept that. Let's just don't, let's... It's gonna, you're going to follow Christ, it's going to cause trouble. It will create trouble in your life. Let's call it out, let's say it what it is. Um, we don't have, and by the way, we don't have to seek it out, it'll come to us. <laughs> but again, going all the way back to our first session, taking our cue out of G.K. Chesterton's character's mouth, this is what they said, remember that, right at the very beginning, if you weren't in here, now you can hear it. This is what their character says. That is what makes life at once so splendid and so strange. We are in the wrong world. And when I thought that I was in the right town, it bored me. But when I think I, it was wrong, I was in the wrong town, I was happy. This, this whole reality is that God says, you want to be happy? Then suffer for me. Because it will reveal to you that you're in the wrong world. And it's a venture. It's an adventure to be living in this world that is not yours or this town that is not your town. Again, they say, when I thought that I was in the right town, it bored me. This world is boring. But it's not boring when it's not your world, when you're following Christ in it. So they say they were happy. Application number two, identify how you are being persecuted or suffering and ask, how does this reveal that, that my superior satisfaction is Christ? Let me read that again. Identify, application number two, identify how you are being persecuted or simply suffering and ask the question, how does this reveal that my superior satisfaction is Christ? So there's something very healthy about saying, as you're, you're getting an, a, 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 being persecuted or you're, you're, you're going through suffering and you're holding on to Jesus in that and you're holding on to this, on your superior satisfaction, ask yourself the question, what am, I what am I learning about this superior satisfaction? How is it that I'm doing this? What have I learned about him that makes him so superior? So don't waste your persecution. Don't waste your suffering. Ask yourself, get, get real intentional and ask yourself, what's so good about Christ that I'm willing to, to suffer for this? Or I'm willing to be persecuted by this. So, you know, don't waste it. Don't waste it. So just being intentional. We don't do that. Sometimes we just ignore it. So don't do that. Number three, daily, daily, I need to acknowledge in prayer my dependence upon my superior satisfaction. So daily, I need to acknowledge in prayer my dependence upon my superior satisfaction. So again, this is a daily thing that we need to be doing. 
They didn't resolve in chapter 1 and hope it would carry them all the way over to chapter 3. They were resolving daily to faith and repentance. They were believed in the superior satisfaction and they repented of those things that they held on to that previous day or that day that was not their superior satisfaction. They were doing this daily. This is absolutely important. Number four, singing. Oh, here we go again. Singing causes our superior satisfaction to strengthen our soul and to shine brightly to others. So singing causes our superior satisfaction to strengthen our soul and to shine brightly to others. Those were my words and not John Piper's, although it kind of sounded like it. Singing causes our superior satisfaction to strengthen our soul and to shine brightly to others. Again, here's Piper in that, in that, passage, or that message I heard. It is the gladness of Godward singing, especially through suffering in the cause of love, that makes God's glory shine most brightly. So what were Paul and Silas doing in the prison jail in Philippi? Acts 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. <laughs> and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Prisoners are set free through singing. People want to know what your superior satisfaction is? Sing to them. Let them hear your songs. That will break whatever is imprisoning them. So we must resolve to hold fast to our superior satisfaction for have joyful courage in the face of culture that is hostile to our faith in Christ Jesus. All right. Any questions or thoughts? Yes. There's our common ground. Our common ground is, you're right, we all have faults. If you go deep enough in every person's life, they're going to be caught, right? They're going to be canceled. That'll give us the rest of it. So, so we can say, too, and this is what you, I think you preached on this on, on, the other, on the last Sunday, um, the answer to cancel culture is that, yeah, we all are going to be found waning and guilty, and we have a Savior who will take that guilt for us, who has taken that guilt for us, who will give us forgiveness. We will have life in him. So, yeah, this is our, here we are. We're on the bridge of, uh, on the brink of a revival. Yeah, look out. Yeah. 
Yep, you'll be thrown into the fire of persecution, and it's there where we meet Jesus. <laughs> and it's there where we have an answer for, as they look and say, wow, you're, you're coming through that unscathed. Yep. Because he didn't have absolute truth, he didn't have satisfaction. And so he was restless, he had a restless heart, his kingdom was restless. It was it was going to fail. All like all society not built on Christ is idolatrous and will fail ultimately. And as many men as On Jesus on our own terms. Yeah. Yeah. All right, last comment. Here we go. This better be good. God is most glorified. We are most satisfied in him. So, so I would say that there is this, God has wired into us a seeking out after that which will truly satisfy. But what we do is we chase after other things that are not satisfying. We keep on worshiping things that are less satisfying. So there is this, I'm not sure if I'm getting at what you're asking, but there is this, there is this peace in every person who is looking for what's best for them, and that's a God-given thing that God has put in them, that drive to what is the best for me, and God says, guess what? What is best for you is going to be most glorifying to me, and that is that you find me most satisfying than anything else in the world. And when you're happy in me, I will be most glorified. So I think that's kind of the idea. I'm not sure if that's what you were getting at, but I think that's how we take after people's hunger, and, and it may sound like, well, you're just... You know, you're, you're just trying to save yourself. It's like, no, I'm not trying to save myself. I'm trying to glorify God by finding the, my superior satisfaction in him. Yeah.
Yeah, it, flow, it does flow out. It does flow out. Um, yeah. Yeah, so God is not a means to something better. God is the better. And out of the better, it flows out of that is a life of joy and happiness in the midst of the persecution. So sometimes when you chase after, you chase after God as your greatest satisfaction, you lose your job. And it's not good for your family in that regard. It's not good for, you know, your future. But then what you discover is God is even better than your job and that future that you imagined yourself having. And that only glorifies God that much more. 